Hello and welcome to Science Conversations, a series examining the intersection of science and faith. I'm Dr Barry Harker and my guest today is Dr John Ashton. Dr Ashton is a chemist working in the field of food chemistry and has a PhD in epistemology. Epistemology is a branch of philosophy dealing with the nature of knowledge and truth. Dr Ashton is also a well-known Christian author. His most recent book is Evolution Impossible, subtitled 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. In this series of science conversations, I'm talking with Dr. Ashton about these reasons. Last time we explored the question, but isn't evolution a fact? Today we're exploring Darwin's theory of evolution to better understand the theory and to see where the evidence leads. Welcome, John. It's great to be talking with you again today. Oh, thanks for having me again, Barry. John, what's the essence of Darwin's theory? Well, Darwin's theory is a, an explanation for how life came to be on Earth from some primitive life form that was here originally and how it actually changed into all the different types of life that we have here today. Um, the theory is, a, is really quite a, um, a clever theory it, uh, it was based on a number of uh, observations that, that Darwin had, had made that he'd put together. I think one of the things that perhaps we can uh, remember is that Darwin lived back in the mid-1800s, and at that time, the world was embracing machines. The steam engine had been developed, um, and... New machines were emerging to make textiles, uh, to mill logs, um, to do all sorts of labour-replacing tasks. And these machines, driven by steam engines, had lots of moving parts, and and people were really enamoured by these, the fact that there were mechanical laws that underpinned I think you uh, these also movements. Had, I think you also had... Um, <laughs> The issue with Sir Isaac Newton too, the concept of the mechanical universe being able to explain the interaction of all the different forces in the in the universe. Well, that's right. This mechanical worldview was certainly uh, underpinning much of the thought, particularly within academia. Um, in fact, uh, before Darwin's time, an engineer by the name of Herbert Spencer had noted. Uh, for example, that there was a, a sort of evolution uh, amongst machines. So machines were gradually evolving to be better and better. So, for example, if you might have uh, a steam engine and somebody developed a, a better pressure valve or a better governor, then that steam engine may then produce more horsepower um, and therefore it would run more mills. Um, and uh, and so people would tend to buy that new, better machine um, and the older machines would no longer be bought. And so there's this constant evolution of, uh, of machines. Um, and so this was a, a concept that was in, in people's minds. The other thing, too, is that, that Darwin was very interested in nature, he, and he made a lot of observations of plants and, and particularly birds. He was very interested in birds. And one of his observations early on was, for example, that when he looked at a little piece of lawn, uh, 
uh, out there. He, he identified, you know, it was something like 20 different species of plants um, all in this little one uh, piece of lawn. But they were all struggling to survive. There were limited resources. There were just this single piece of soil, the same sunlight. They were all struggling to survive, to reproduce their own species in that little piece of land. And when Darwin saw this struggle in the, uh, of the plants to survive, it, it triggered some notions for him. And uh, there, were, you know, there were many other things that... Uh, what were some of those other observations? Well, one of the things that happened to Darwin early in life was he was invited to go on a voyage around the world. And that voyage was on the, on the Beagle. And Darwin was a, was a young man, a very young man at that time, but he was cultivating these ideas. He was obviously thinking about these things in, in his mind, about this struggle, about the plants. He had observed the different plants in, in Europe, in America, and as I mentioned earlier, in birds. Now, when he went off on this trip, this was a, an amazing opportunity for a young man at that time to observe different species around the world, different uh, time, times of life. Now, it just so happened that as he was setting off on that uh, trip, the captain of the Beagle had bought a copy of Charles Lyell's new book, um, the, principles the Principles of Geology. Geology. Now, that was another work that had co- that had come out. This was 1833 uh, that had come out, and. Lyle was, again, a brilliant geologist, and we can talk about this in a little bit more detail uh, later, but essentially Lyle believed that the formations of rock on the earth had formed over millions of years. They hadn't formed as a result of the flood. Now, up till that time, and about that time, at Oxford University, geology was still taught in terms of flood geology. And it was a very reasonable explanation. It was a catastrophic explanation. explained a lot of things. But Lyle had adopted Hutton's views of very slow erosion rates, very slow deposition rates, millions of years of erosion to form the physical forms that we see. Now, Lyle read this book, uh, sorry, Darwin read this book while he was on the boat. Now, a couple of things were happening here that it, again, Describe this concept of very long ages. And so um, Darwin uh, put together his theory of uh, slow changes. I guess there's a lot to, to say here, um, uh, you know, in a, short, in a short period of time. But essentially, as Darwin observed these, uh, this struggle for existence in this little, little patch um, of, of soil... When he travelled around, he also noticed that there were, there were changes in species. So, for example, in the islands off the west coast of uh, Africa, he noticed in one p- particular part there were a lot of wingless beetles. I think there were about 500 species of beetles on this particular island. And on the windy side of the island, they were predominantly wingless beetles or beetles with deformed wings so they couldn't fly. And it sort of... It was a, you know, sort of a clicked with him that, hang on, these beetles haven't been able to fly out to sea, so they've got to um, be blown out to sea. So they've had a greater chance to mate and reproduce. And that's why there's a lot of these wingless beetles here. Whereas in the area of the island where there was very little wind, most of the beetles had wings. 
because they had no problem being blown out to off out to sea. So they were able to to mate and reproduce. So this introduced this whole concept. Well, maybe there were mutations and changes. And Darwin definitely did come up with a brilliant idea. He he came up with the idea that all these small changes over time would eventually produce a significant change. Now, why this was significant was this. When Darwin was studying his little piece of ground with all the different species of grass, he thought the species of grass, any species that has the greatest diversity of form, is going to have the better chance of survival should there be a change in uh, temperature or rainfall or drought and this sort of thing. The more varieties there were, the greater chance of survival. And this was the fundamental principle that he that he that underpinned his theory. The the more diversity, the greater chance of survival. Because what happened then is the forces of nature would sort out the best suited one to survive, and hence survival of the fittest. So he took the ideas from engineering, he took the ideas from uh, from a, uh, from what was happening in society, he saw what was happening in nature, and he applied these. And when he saw the mutations of the beetle, right, these little mutations can provide the variation which over time best suit the creatures so to Darwin, survive. So Darwin is really giving us a mechanism for evolution. I mean, the concept of evolution had been around for some decades in its modern form. So at this point, he is actually giving a rational or a reasonable or even a plausible mechanism for the way in which species could diverge. Yes, definitely. And he, he'd seen this, and as he thought about it, when he wrote up his, his theory, the other brilliant stroke that he had was he was able to illustrate it with a tree. And so essentially... Darwin assumed that there must have been a common ancestor. So he worked back. You've got all these different species, all the different forms of animals. And he worked backwards. And he said, so originally there must have been some common ancestor. right? And then this ancestor was carrying a lot of variation, a lot of diversity somehow. And it, 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 there were mutations and it diversified into a large range of, of slight variations. And each of these little variations then in turn underwent slight changes, we call them mutations, and so we have more variations. And as you can imagine, after a period of time and you have all these successive variations that may pop up after he suggested a thousand generations, after a long period of time, and he's suggesting you know, 10,000 or 14,000 generations, the new type of animal is so different, or the new type of species could be a plant, bacteria, is so different from the original that it is now a new species. I mean, when you repeat this, you then get a new, totally new uh, genera of species and so forth up through what we identify now as families and orders and so forth. And so this was the... This was the concept then of how life formed all these different things. And he drew, working backwards from the tree, he noted a lot of uh, you know, sim- similarities between the animals and, and that then became the basis of evidence for his theory. He really never explained where species came from in the first place. 
Well, not where the the first species came from, no. And and that's why sometimes evolutionists argue, well, that's not our problem. (laughs) We're talking about from where the first life was uh, from then on. The other aspect that that Darwin Darwin came up with the the these ideas this mechanical model for life now you know because it's 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 systematic it's all these small mutations small changes and eventually you have something completely different which you know paralleled the development of machines remembering of course though, that machines have intelligent designers and we don't want to lose point of that fact that those machines those new um, uh, pressure valves, those new governors, those better designed pistons, those better designed boilers and heat transfer mechanisms, they were all designed. So the evolution of machines was a result of design. And we, this, But anyway, nonetheless, that didn't probably come into Darwin's theory. He was looking at some sort of random process. And so he thought that this in, there was an inherent ability uh, for diversity, obviously, um, within the within the species, and that was the secret to survival. The the species that was carrying the greatest diversity in its in its reproductive system, he didn't understand about genes back then, had the greatest chance of survival. Now the other thing was, and they were small accumulated differences. That's they, right. Yes, over time that would produce it. But the other thing was that. Darwin at this time was also reading Lyle's book. Now, Lyle had spent a lot of time studying the fossils in the Alps. He originally, I guess, trained in law, but he was very interested in geology and he had become enamoured with the concept of long ages. And I think in a way too, as from a lawyer point of view, he was looking at some way to break away from the control of the church. And to do this, he was looking at some way to perhaps prove the Bible incorrect. So he's so, looking at the record in the Alps from the perspective of a person who's trying to develop a case that would disconnect science from religion. Oh, definitely, I would say so at that at that time. Now, I don't want to judge him, uh, and it's a while since I've read what he has written in this particular area, but... Uh, Lyle was certainly had disbelieved the Genesis story and the flood story. And he had adopted the view, as I mentioned earlier, that the formations of rock that we see, the, the structures like the canyons and mountains and valleys and the different rock layers and the fossils that they contain in places were formed by slow natural processes over a long period of time. Now, of course, they're all going to be natural, but but slow, essentially slow processes, slow gradual erosion, uh, slow deposition, slow burial, um, these sort of situations. But one of the things that he did notice was this, and he reported on, and that is that the fossils higher up appeared to be more complex in their in their in their uh, design or structure than the fossils in the lower layers seem to be simpler. Now, Darwin, of course, thought, right, this fits perfectly with my idea that life has become more complex over time. It has developed more complexity in order to survive better. Um, and so the fossil record seemed to confirm what uh, Darwin proposed. And, of course, 
extending this, he um, after some time after he published his original book, um, I forget um, who it was now, but uh, one of the um, the the famous writers at that time, not Huxley. Huxley, yes, Huxley uh, wrote. Um, argued that humans had evolved or originated from apes. And, and Darwin then took um, uh, some time to develop that theory and, and write extensively that humans had uh, evolved from um, apes or uh, uh, gorillas or some common ancestor very close to those, and hence they would find the missing links in, in Africa. And, I, and, I, and, of course, that explains why, you know, biologists um, and zoologists, anthropologists have spent a lot of time in Africa. But I guess to, to sum up this, this put together this picture that now meant that biology and the origin of life had a mechanical model that biologists and scientists working in the biology area, they, they could apply the principles of this mechanical model to science, just like the physicists and the chemists and the engineers were able to use um, the laws of physics, chemistry and engineering uh, to progress their areas of, of study. And I think that with the long ages proposed by uh, Lyle really cemented the, the theory in the, in the minds of many of those people at that time. So the tree of life that Darwin used also looked at the fossil record. So he's putting the fossils on this tree of life. So he's trying to give us a explanation of the fossil record as well, but in evolutionary terms. Yes, yes, exactly. And I, I think the, the two came together as well. Um, we find that Lyle had already written this work. Darwin now explained why there were these differences in the in the different layers up the up the scale, at least from from their perspective, it appeared to explain that. Now we need to remember that this was a totally different picture to the Bible record, a totally different picture. So in the Bible record, we have that God created all the different types of life that are on Earth, that there was a massive extinction during the flood and that there were certain survivors after the flood of plants and animals and uh, people, and that, so, and that modern life since the front is relatively recent, only thousands of years. Now, the theories that Lyle and Darwin were putting forward were totally changing it. They were saying that life had a mechanical origin, very different from the Bible, and that life on Earth was millions of years old. He didn't uh, say that the fossil record was complete. He didn't have all these gradations between the animals and plants in the fossil record, but he believed that in the future that evidence would be found because if evolution were to be true, then you would expect all these intermediate forms both in plants and animals. Well, that's very true. There were a number of issues that Darwin back in his day recognised were major problems. One of those was the, the missing links. There weren't these intermediate species, particularly when we get to more complex uh, uh, life forms where it's easier to observe that there are the missing links. Um, they, they just weren't there. Um, so that was a major problem. The other major problem was that there were very, very complex animals found very low down in the fossil record, in the Cambrian. 
The Cambrian, in fact, was has later been found to contain really most of the major phyla um, or representatives from most of the major phyla that we know of. So why were these highly complex animals like trilobites and nautiluses way down there at the bottom of the fossil record? That was a major problem, and in actual fact, it was a major doubt for Darwin. The other thing was, how did structures like the eye evolve? These were issues that Darwin wrestled with. He didn't have an explanation for. And, uh, but I think the thing that the overriding factor was that two things. It provided a mechanical model for the biological sciences. So they could now compete with the other physical sciences in terms of looking for mechanisms to explain changes in biology. And the other thing was, too, it now challenged the authority of the Bible and the authority of the church. And I think that was a motivating factor behind a a lot of people. They wanted to challenge the authority that the church had at that time. And the way to do that was to destroy the, or to challenge the accuracy of the Bible. Now, up until the 1990s, biologists tried to identify these proposed evolutionary pathways for the tree of life based on the fossil record. Mm. And this particularly involved the homologies, the similarities Mm. between creatures based on their skeletal similarities or Mm -hmm. the physiological similarities. Yes. But that's all changed now. What's the current focus in evolutionary biology today? Yes, so Darwin, for example, noticed that, say, elephants and giraffes had the same number of vertebrae, therefore they would have had the same common ancestor. Um, And, uh, you know, similar uh, sort of many mammals have the same structure of their arms. And so they obviously, mammals would have the same common ancestor according to Darwin's theory. And so when he proposed his evolutionary trees and and biologists up to the 1990s, essentially when they were drawing up the evolutionary trees to extend on Darwin's work 100 years earlier or so, then they used these physiological or structural similarities. But then, of course, we have the massive ability to study DNA, which developed in the uh, latter part of last century and particularly reached um, an economic uh, situation in the 1990s where it now became economically feasible uh, to study the DNA of, of different creatures and they began massively mapping the, the DNA sequences in, in different forms of life. And so now what they've done is they're looking at these sequences within the DNA and mapping and attempting to map the origin of species according to the similarities of the DNA in, in, in different species. But this has led to major problems in that it leads to a very much different tree of life to that which we would expect on the basis of the uh, structural similar, the physical structural similarities. And so, you know, there's, there's been articles, uh, you know, published in the science journals, you know, destroying Darwin's uh, tree of life. Um, so really 
the the whole situation now has, has placed a whole lot of uh, question because they start to get sort of uh, similarities that intuitively just don't follow um, in terms of one creature evolving into another on the basis of the genetic similarities. Um, that just it just doesn't seem. Plausible Is there any link between the two? Are they finding any link between the? Skeletal homologies and the DNA? Well, they're, they're, they find some, but there are many just absolutely, totally weird uh, exceptions. And as I said, the two trees are very much different. They don't overlap, as one would expect. And so this is, this is I think, some of the early signs that there are major problems with the theory. These were some of the early signs that, hang on, there's something different going on here. This isn't really working. And that's what scientists really should have recognised. These two trees should have overlapped, but they're not overlapping. But people talk about them pretty well at the general population level and in most documentaries as if they do. But when you look at the, the science literature now, the trees are actually quite a bit different. So what is the, what is the modern synthesis? Well, the, there are major problems with the modern synthesis for the uh, theory. This is, and we'll talk about this probably in, um, in, a, in a week or so's time, uh, in that we now know that these different structures are a result of changes in the genetic codes. And so you've got to actually change the DNA code to uh, produce these uh, different um, uh, chain physiological changes. So if you want your fish to evolve into an amphibian, you've got to produce massive changes in the genetic code. So where do these changes come from? Mutations can't produce these codes. So there, there's massive problems now. The, the so-called new synthesis doesn't work either. So... This is why we're leading up to the point. Darwin's theory was a brilliant theory, absolutely brilliant theory. But the evidence is just not there that it actually is the explanation. The more we've looked, the more we drill into it, the more we realise it doesn't work. It doesn't fit what we observe. It's a brilliant theory, but it doesn't fit what we actually observe. And this is the important point. People used to be on the top of that tree of life mm. as the most advanced form. Mm. Where do we fit if we look at the DNA evidence? Is there any change to that? <laughs> well, this is, this is interesting. I mean, there's many, many species that have much more complex DNA than we do, like wheat. <laughs> A seed of wheat or rice has far more, uh, you know, probably five times more DNA complexity than we have. Yeah, this is one of the. So should we put the weed above us on the on the tree? (laughs) This is one of the you know the 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 fascinating things, and um, and of course I guess the the big issue too is that you see, and I mean this really disappoints me the um, the insistence that you know we evolved from apes, and I, I think I read. Or from, article, or from a, perhaps or a common ancestor of both. Yes, or a common ancestor of both apes and uh, gorillas and these sort of things. And, uh, you know, I read a, an article recently where I think it was in some American com- country. They wanted to sort of uh, have a, a bill of human rights for sort of, you know, ape-like creatures. Um, and I think it's... Uh, 
But I, I think this is something that we need to drill down into. Um, apes and humans are, are, are very different. Mm. Mm. Now let's move on to um, just the DNA similarities between humans and apes and just uh, dwell on this for a moment. There are similarities and this is used as a confirmation that we are closely related. What do you think? Well, I, I remember seeing a picture of a, um, a display of Lucy that was in a, a very prominent museum. Uh, I think it was in the United States somewhere. I remember seeing the, um, uh, the picture of it in a book. And really, it, it was ridiculous. It was sort of like, a, as I recall it, it was sort of like um, a, a female uh, bikini model but with fur all over her and a monkey face. And this was sort of a, a portrayal of the, the, the intermediate species. And I, I'm, 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 I think it may have even been a, a supposed model of Lucy. Um, and these sort of, the, this sort of portrayal in, in, uh, in museums sort of put into the, the minds of people, yes, we, we evolved from, from apes. Look, it, it's just like a really super hairy human being with an ape-like head. When we look at, say, the classic example of Lucy, which for many years was uh, you know, hailed as, look, this is the, the intermediate species. Uh, this is showing the evolution of apes to humans. Back in the 70s, it was shown that Lucy was very, very different from either apes or humans. Matter of fact, Lucy was as different from apes and humans as apes are from humans. So it was a totally different species. And a couple of world-leading um, anthropologists uh, published work on this and studied the skeleton, you know, the, the structure of the, the pelvic area and the way the bones are, are socketed into the pelvis and this sort of thing. No way could Lucy stand upright as she is often displayed in, in models or drawn. Uh, she just she it would be extremely difficult for her to to stand that way. And again, these findings have been, were published in journals like Nature, New Scientist. Um, but again, we we have Lucy is still talked about as a, an intermediate species, but she's very different. She was just a, a unique type of of ape. Um, when we look at the DNA similarities, when the ape. Um, uh, uh, genome was uh, uh, was sequenced in the um, in the uh, or it might have been the chimpanzee uh, uh, genome was uh, sequenced in around about two thousand and five. There was a great um, sort of um, publicity about the the similarities, and people were talking about well, there's ninety six percent similarity, ninety eight percent similarity. But since that time, more detailed studies of the, um, of the similarities have revealed that, you know, something like 25% of, uh, of the sequences in chimps and, and humans are different. They're, 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 they're quite different. And that's a massive difference, isn't it? That is a massive And, and other people have, have also done studies and said, yeah, the, the similarity is not more than, you know, 85% at, uh, at the most. So, and one of the things we need to understand is how do we measure these similarities? If you look at the code itself, just as we would write it out, 
There's, there's no similarity. You know, I mean, how do you pick similarities? What they try to do is look at sequences for for particular, you know, physiological functions and so forth within the structure of the genome. And as I said, when they do this, um, and now that they've drilled down, we understand more about how DNA works and the codes within the codes. Yes, the, the similarities are nowhere near what evolutionists would like to have claimed. But how do we explain any similarities at all? Well, of course, this is where I think the intelligent design comes in. So, you know, many people say, well, you know, there's many of these creatures, they have, you know, five digit uh, on their hand and, and so forth, similar forearm structures as we start before, you know, similar blood chemistry and uh, these sort of things. They have livers and pancreases and, and so forth. And hence, we can use them to, to you know, study um, uh, human health issues in some instances and the effects of different medicines and so forth. Um, but uh, these similarities, when we think about it, really represent amazing intelligent design. Like if you, the hand is a, is a brilliant system, absolutely brilliant system. You think of the diversity of, of what you can do with your hand and, and what people do with their hands from climb up rock faces to to get into you know, very difficult parts to repair your motor car and undo some tiny little thing, uh, for surgeons to be able to operate on a brain or some you know, delicate part of the body. All these amazing things that we can do with our hand, hold on to things, support our weight, all these sort of things. If you're a designer, why not use that design? And we had that all through industry and engineering, you know, and the classic example is, say, the VW and the Porsche. They're very similar because they had the same design team, the, um, you know, Ferdinand Porsche and his son, Ferry Porsche. Um, they designed those cars. You think VW, yes, an air-cooled horizontal uh, engine um, and uh, in the rear and, and so forth. But Porsches and VWs are very different I mean, you know, tell the Porsche owner that he's just driving a VW, you know, <laughs> and see what his reaction is. But there were many characteristics that were similar because it was a, the original VW design was a brilliant design. So the, common, so the common design argument, or common designer rather, works just as well as the common ancestor argument. Oh, definitely, yes. And see, the way, where the common ancestor argument falls down is You've got to have a mechanism. See, what we're doing is we're observing something, right? We observe these similarities in the bone structures. And that's fine. That's a fact. That's what we observe. But how do these similarities arise? Why is it that the forearm of a monkey and a horse have a similar bone structure? Why, why is it? Now... It doesn't mean that the monkey and the horse evolved from the same common ancestor. If that was the case, we have to have a mechanism that demonstrates that evolution. We know that those structures are produced by genetic codes. So then we have to have a mechanism. How do we change the genetic codes appropriately to make those changes in the structure but yet follow the same pattern? And to this present time, there's no known mechanism whereby that can occur. Me mutations can't produce it. But if there was a designer that says, this is a brilliant design, I'm going to use this in a number of ways, that fits as well. I'm Dr Barry Harker, and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 
12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. We've got a good idea of Darwin's theory now. After the break, I'll be talking with Dr. Ashton about the problems with the modern synthesis of Darwin's theory of evolution. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3ABNAustralia.org.au Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. In this part of the program... I'll be talking with Dr. Ashton about the problems with the modern synthesis of Darwin's theory of evolution. Now, John, Darwin had views on embryology. What were they? And uh, how did Ernst Haeckel relate to these views? Yes, well, uh, Haeckel um, actually uh, proposed that evolution was actually demonstrated in the embryological development of uh, an organism. So he actually uh, illustrated one of his works with uh, diagrams of uh, the embryos at uh, at a particular development stage of, say, um, a fish. I think there was a salamander and uh, a rabbit and a human uh, and uh, and a couple of other uh, species. And essentially what he showed was that during the stages of development, they went through the sort of evolutionary changes, such as it was believed that all these animals had originally evolved from fish that are evolved into amphibians that are then evolved into reptiles and then subsequently into mammals and so forth. Um, and that when you when these embryo were developing, they went through these different stages. So, for example, there was a stage when the embryo had gills, for example, um, and Darwin actually believed this. He he uh, looked in into this himself, and he he believed that this was the case, and was and that it was actually evidence for evolution. Now this survived for a long time. I mean, something was fairly difficult to to check, but in the mid nineteen nineties. It was checked. I think it was a, a Dr. Richardson and a, a team actually took photographs of the embryos of the same creatures that Heckel had originally drawn and that Darwin had originally uh, adopted, it said, and, and demonstrated. Uh, so, for example, in humans, at no stage does a human embryo develop gills. At no stage. It just doesn't happen. The embryos don't go through these uh, stages that are mirroring 
their historical evolutionary development. It just doesn't happen. But yet uh, I noticed that textbooks as recent as 2005 still recorded that the embryos of mammals at some stage have, have gills. I think this a, was... a major major university textbook that is that is used uh, internationally uh, to teach biology students. So, and and this is one of the really really fascinating things that has come out of this. If we if we use this example of uh, of, of Heckel's uh, images and so forth, and the concept that that embryos go through this evolutionary development in their their own development. It has been demonstrated that it's been proved wrong. It's the evidence has been published in leading science journals, in specialised science journals. In it's been uh, article published in the journal Science, which is perhaps one of the top uh, science journals in the world, back in the 1990s. But yet, this refutation of this idea, this supposed evidence that supports evolutionary theory, the refutation of that evidence hasn't got into a major teaching textbook used in our universities today. And that's a, that's, a, that's a very important issue that highlights a number of areas that have come up with the theory of evolution where scientists have discovered evidence that refutes the theory, but it doesn't get passed on. It might get published initially, but it's not getting passed on. We talked about the earlier one, for example, with Lucy. Um, how it's definitely not an intermediate species on the uh, developing into humans. But these concepts, they're, they're not being edited out of the textbooks. The textbooks aren't being adjusted. I understand that we've known since the 1920s that the embryological evidence didn't really support this concept. So it's taken quite a while for that to get through to the textbooks. Well, yes, there were... Uh, I mean, the evidence just didn't seem to be there, but the first systematic review with photographs and so forth that definitely refuted it uh, wasn't published till I think, um, 1997. But the, the issue is that the evidence refuting evolution is out there, but it just isn't being taught to the students. And students are being taught evidences for evolution that in many cases are no longer valid. Well, that requires explanation. Perhaps we, we, won't, we won't have time to sort of explore that. I know that we'll be coming back to that throughout the series. But I'm just wondering if the embryological evidence isn't supportive of the theory, how convincing is the theory really? And what are some areas where alternative explanations are actually better supported? Well, the, the whole theory now, because we understand more about DNA and the DNA code and the role that the DNA code has in uh, determining the structure and physiology of an organism, we know that to produce these changes in the code would require massive amounts of mutations, massive mutations, massive mutations to the code produce any significant new organism. It, it doesn't happen over a 1,000 generations or 10,000 generations as Darwin might have thought. You know, um, they're bred E. coli through 50,000, 60,000 generations. They're and fruit still flies as well, E. coli. Yeah, so it, it, it doesn't happen. When we look at the structures of the code, it's too complex. It doesn't work that way. The only way we can really account for these changes is deliberate, intelligent design. 
deliberate, intelligent design. There is no known mechanism, and we'll talk about this in more detail later, to explain the new codes that would be required to form the new species. And so the bottom line is there's actually no known mechanism for evolution. Now, sometimes people say, look, you know, that you, you can't be right. You know, they, they, they say to me, you can't be right. But And I challenge them, look, just go on to the University of California, Berkeley is one of the top universities into the world. If you go on to their Evolution 101 uh, website, uh, they have a number of questions and research issues there that you can uh, search for. And you'll see that what they state there is that one of the main challenges for biologists to research today is how evolution can produce new types of organisms, can produce new forms. They don't know. They don't have a mechanism. Students think that we have a mechanism. Students think that there is a known mechanism behind Darwin's theory. But there isn't. So, And we now know from our studies of mathematics, and we can talk about this more in more detail later, that it is actually impossible on the basis of what we know now. So Darwin's theory was a brilliant theory, in terms of appearing to explain, in terms of a mechanical model. But when we drill down to the actual biochemistry and now understanding now DNA and genetics, it doesn't work. Are you saying then that mutations don't add up to new information and new species? That's right. Um, the, there, well, we can talk about this in more detail. There are corrective mechanisms there. The amount of mutations required are, are absolutely huge to produce a significant new change. The other thing is, too, the big emphasis of Darwin's theory was natural selection. Natural selection doesn't produce new codes. See, the wingless beetles, they were there. That was not new code. That was the loss of information. What natural selection does is it actually reduces code. See, natural selection actually drives everything in the opposite to evolution. Now, many students have the concept, oh, natural selection, this is how we produce the new So organism. natural selection is not a creative thing. It's, no. It's a thing. Natural selection destroys code. And that's the and this is the important point that we need to understand that natural selection destroys code. So you have a diversity, and what happens is you have a change in the environment or some predator comes in, and what happens is he chomps up all the little creatures that don't run fast enough, and the creatures that do run fast, they survive. That's natural selection. But all the interesting codes that were in those little creatures that didn't run fast enough are now lost because they've all been chomped up. Those codes are lost. Natural selection destroys codes. And natural selection has to have something to work on, doesn't it? So this brings yes. us back to the whole origin mm. of life issue. And mm. I know that in the next talk, in our mm. next conversation, we're going to be looking at the origin of the first cell or the supposed origin of the first cell. Mm. Mm. So all the aspects, when we look at Darwin's theory, um, it, it's something, over, you know, most children can grasp the concept. And it's, it's just inculcated into, been inculcated into our culture, just about every documentary that you have. And, uh, you know, I was watching a, um, the awards of a fishing championship and they were weighing this um, 
swordfish, I think it was, that had been caught, this very large swordfish, and they were saying, admiring the design, they were talking about how fast a swordfish can travel through the water, and they were saying how its body has evolved over millions of years to be so streamlined in its muscles and fins in just the right place and right proportion to be able to gain these tremendous speeds in the water. So, you know, here we have a, a, a fish catch commentator, you know, is espousing sort of evolution. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we? Because if, <laughs> if there's no known mechanism hmm. for evolution... Uh, then we have to go right back and have a look at the origin of life and mm. see if that's possible. Because if that's not possible, all of the discussion and debate about diversification of species and so forth might be just uh, unproductive. Well, that's that's true. The origin of life is a is a major um, is a major issue. Uh, many evolutionists don't consider it their problem. They say, well, we, we don't know how life first started. You know, that's for the biochemists or maybe it came here from, from outer space. But I think it all, one of the big issues for me is this, that evolution, the Darwin theory was a very clever theory and a lot of people adopted it. A lot of scientists took it up at the particular time and it really put the church on their back foot because science appeared to be based on evidence that was reproducible evidence. And sure, when we went all around the world, there were these reproducible, the geological column was there. There were these layers of fossils, and they seemed to get more complex when when you went up. And so there appeared to be this evidence what they didn't realise was that, hang on, there are no missing links. They're, the intermediate species aren't there. Secondly, the, back in those days, the age estimates were based on guesses. They didn't really have good data. And second, we, we had evidences for catastrophe. We had evidences that, there, that the past wasn't uniform and people didn't grapple with that. And I think what had happened was that the church didn't have the expertise to counter this, and they attempted to, uh, but they were really, in many ways, I, I think, bullied by the science at the time that seemed to have the upper hand. And we got to the stage where, you know, back in um, 2009, you know, some of the churches even apologised at the sesquicentenary of publishing of Darwin's book, apologised to Darwin, and many churches have now adopted some form of theistic Evolution. They say, well, maybe God was behind this. But what we need to understand is at the present time that Darwin's theory needs a mechanism and there's no mechanism. We now know on the basis of science that it's absolutely impossible. And the churches should not have apologised. They should have said, well, we want more evidence. We want more evidence that the theory really does work. We want more evidence. That Next time happens. we're going to look at the, the fact that... Um the origin of the first cell or first life is really impossible on naturalistic lines so that the reality or the supposed fact of evolution is not demonstrated. And that makes this distinction between science and faith that people like to propose that there are two different domains, that one is dealing with facts and the other one is just dealing with blind, blind faith. Reflect for us um, over a couple of minutes on this supposed distinction between science as a fact-generating mechanism and faith as just blind faith? Hmm. 
Well, that, that's right. At, at the present time, we know that life is a miracle. There's no known way that non-living molecules can form a living cell. And I mean, every cannery is based on that. <laughs> we know that in that uh, can, it's not going to become alive if, it's, if the contents are dead. But, you know, what, what is life? And, and particularly what are, what are, what are thoughts we, what we can understand life. Sciences deal with the physical world and, and measurements that we can make. But there's a difference in terms of when we make measurements, what do those measurements mean? On the other hand, faith and the biblical record talks about people's encounter with a supernatural God. Now, the Bible talks about God being spirit or non-material. And when you think about it, our thoughts are non-material, aren't they? I mean, do your thoughts have mass? Do your thoughts have volume? Can you cut your thoughts up? No, they're non-material. But your thoughts are very real. So there's a very, very spiritual aspect to the reality of life. Now, science can't get in and measure that area. And... The Bible, though, talks about this encounter with, um, with God, with an intelligence, with a designer. And to me, the, the biblical account of our origins fits the data. And in fact, many scientists who believe made very great discoveries um, because they, I'm reading the Bible, the Bible gives us a picture of origins, it gives us a picture of design. When we look for design in the human body, that's when we've made the greatest medical discoveries. When we've said that the human body evolved, we've had major problems with medical discoveries. So the the whole thing about um, science is that it assumes that the universe is orderly and works according to laws. And so you have to assume that this just didn't come into existence by chance. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the known laws that we have. Well, that's right. Paul so, Davies so, is... So, so really, Christianity is providing a basis for science, isn't it? Oh, very much so. Uh, you know, Christians need to be very, very proud of the, the insights that are in the Bible about how we are, how we came to be. You know, even Paul, uh, Paul Davies, uh, the great physicist, points out... Where did the laws of physics come from? You know, these are things we can talk about later, but we know that these are these laws there. These laws follow intelligent mathematical principles, the laws of physics and chemistry, which underpin biology. Everything points to an intelligent designer. Everything points to an intelligent first cause. If my mind originated by chance, then can I really trust it? <laughs> well, this is it. We don't know whether our thoughts are all that random. It, it certainly makes a mockery of logic, in my view anyway, um, and our being able to understand anything and have a basis for knowing. The Bible gives us a very sound basis for knowing. And I think one of the things we can look at is you know, some of the issues of radiometric dating and some of these other discoveries. Have they really disproved the Bible? What do they really say? There's so much misinformation out there about what these scientific measurements are actually saying. That's the issue. We can make the measurements, but what do the measurements actually tell us? And if our minds are really determined, so what I'm saying to you now was determined by my genes and my heredity and the environment that I'm in, um, what does that say about science? Can I really say that science can be trusted 
if it's the end result of determinism, where everything that I say and I do has been determined mm. by my genes or my background. Mm. Where's free will in all of this? Mm. Yes, those issues are very difficult issues for science, and I think the issue of the mind is a major problem. Evolution has no explanation for the origin of the mind. Darwin's theory can't explain the origin of the mind. He didn't attempt to. John, that seems a good point to close off our conversation today. Thank you for coming in. It's been wonderful talking with you. I'm Dr Barry Harker, and you've been listening to Science Conversations. My guest has been Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. Today, in conversation, I've been talking with Dr. Ashton about Darwin's theory of evolution. We've tried to understand its central claims and to evaluate them based on the available evidence. Next time, I'll be talking with Dr. Ashton about his claim that it's impossible for life to arise by chance processes. Remember to join me next time on Science Conversations. Until then, bye for now and God bless you.